to live and follow thee. Destitute, Christ's model is a model of how to live the Christian life, which, in this passage especially, means living sacrificially for fellow believers and is inextricably tied to the secure hope of redemption accomplished by the work of Christ, the historical completion of Christ's work. It's always wonderful to be here with you at WSBC. I bring you greetings from uh, RPF, Reformed Presbyterian Fellowship. I believe we have our entire congregation uh, here with us. So welcome WSBC. No, just kidding. Today we are going to continue our series on Romans. We are on Romans chapter 15. This is part of the third phase of a Christian's life of living in gratitude, in grateful obedience to God for his mercy and his grace in our lives. Changes regularly come in our lives, and accompanying these changes would be anxiety. Anxiety maybe mixed with a little fear or excitement maybe some opportunity, and the degree of anxiety corresponds to the degree of change. So you may have, let's say, a, a new appliance, and you're really excited about it, but it causes a little bit of anxiety about how to use it. Maybe a moving into a new apartment, that can produce some anxiety, a little bit more. A, a new job, maybe a new spouse, definitely a new child can bring some changes. And how do we do that? Well, there's a number of ways that we do that. One way we look for instructions. We need help. And one way that we look for help is to look for an example. Look for a model to live up to, to, to sort of copy or, or imitate. Thinking of having a child, who do you look to? You look to usually a parent. And why do we look to the parent as the example or the model? Well, because they've gone through it. They've struggled with what it means to be a new parent. And trust me when I say you can read as many manuals on raising a child as you want. Once that child comes, those manuals don't mean anything anymore. What is more important is the person that's gone through it, who can walk alongside of you. Now, a model or example, there's a few features of a model or example that I'd like to quickly uh, mention. Number one, why do we look for these examples when change comes? Why do we look for these models? Well, because they give us comfort. They give us ease. When your mother or your father come to your house with your newborn baby, all of a sudden you have this sigh of relief. Still hard, still a lot of work, but you have a momentary sigh of relief, number one. Number two, that model changes you because you start 
acting, you follow the instruction of, of the model. You begin to mimic them. It changes your identity in, in many ways. The third aspect of a model or example is that if you're looking to that model, not only are you drawn to that model, but that model is now drawn to you, and your relationship now is strengthened. Now there's a fourth aspect, the three elements of an example that I just gave. These are more sort of consequences of a model. But I want to think about, and this is the fourth aspect that I want to consider, is that a model, especially a good model, well actually even a bad model, a good model is one that stands the test of time. You go to a parent, you go to a seasoned, let's say, employee, a mentor or something, and they've been tested. So over time, they've shown themselves. So they're kind of like, you can almost say they're historical figures. Uh, they satisfy all those, the three consequences, but most important, they are historical figures. They, keep, they give you kind of a precedent to live by. And the portion of our passage that I'd like to focus on today assumes these features of life examples, but centers them in the person of Christ. Christ's model is a model of how to live the Christian life, which, in this passage especially, means living sacrificially for fellow believers, and is inextricably tied to the secure hope of redemption accomplished by the work of Christ. The historical completion of Christ's work. And so we'll unpack this in uh, three points. We'll be unpacking this in three points. Number one, Christ our example, or Christ our model. Number two, Christ our hope. And then number three, Christ our fulfillment. Christ our fulfillment. Now, if you're like me, I kind of like a, a sort of heuristic scheme, a cognitive scheme that can sort of stick into my brain a little better. And, and uh, if, if you're uh, interested in that, we could say something like Christ our hero, Christ our hope, and Christ our heritage. So with that, let's go ahead and, and uh, let me read Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol you. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. On some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Well, that's where I'm going to end uh, for today. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks, Lord willing. Uh, we'll finish up Romans 15 and also Romans 6, which is uh, a completion of a series that I've been doing in the book of Romans. So point number one, let's look at this, the first few verses. Christ our example, particularly from verses one through six. Romans, really from Romans 12 on to the end. Romans 12 to the end constitutes a part of the third aspect of the life of a believer, that is a life of thankful obedience to God, that is living a life of gratitude for God's mercy and grace. And it continues with a focus on a diverse community that is united in the work of Christ. Now, this unity requires work. Paul understands this. We've seen already from Romans 11 uh, the anxiety of learning how to live a new life, how to relate to fellow believers, old and new, as well as how to live in a world, especially in the context of the Roman Empire. We're thinking of the, the church in Rome here, right? So as to the former relating to fellow believers, our focus for today is the relationship between Gentiles, perhaps unfamiliar with Jewish tradition, and of course this new faith, and Jews, especially among those who are not quick to give up or alter Old Testament practices. To say it like Paul does, we have a distinction between weak and strong Christians. Now we could ask, who's the strong here? Who's the weak? One commentator actually says that the weak refers to the Jews who are unwilling to part with the Old Testament habits. And I want to play with that uh, today. Let's, let's stick with that. Paul encourages the stronger to carry the weaker Christians. 
to give of oneself, to self-sacrifice as, as we've seen uh, previously. And of course, this isn't easy. Paul knows this, but it's not as difficult as they may think or not as difficult as you may think. Paul puts our burdens in perspective. You know, the occasional abstaining from uh, certain foods or observing a special religious day shouldn't seem like much of a burden in comparison with Christ and what he had to suffer for us. Christ bore the reproaches, the rejections, the hostility of the world for our sake, without doubt, showing that Christ was not concerned with satisfying himself. In short, your problems are not as bad, right? Put them in perspective. Now, bearing one, uh, someone else's weakness is not like, generally how we say it, um, uh, you know, in, in English, you know, bear with me, which essentially means just sort of be, just wait, be patient, okay? Bear with me. Rather, bearing with others mean, means literally to, to, to lift up and to carry the burdens of others. As Paul says in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love one another. The strong should, and here's another word for carry, assume. Assume, again, to take up oneself, okay, to carry. Jesus says this in Luke uh, uh, 22, where he tells us, to his disciples to look for, look for this man carrying, I don't know, right? So this carrying is, we could say, uh, uh, um, we could sharpen it a little bit more by saying this carrying is kind of an attitude of empathy, of imagining ourselves in the shoes of another. What's often been called being the impartial spectator sympathetically entering into the attitude of someone else, trying to imagine what they're going through, and refraining from criticizing and judging and doing what love requires, as Paul says. And what's that? Well, love demands that the strong go above and beyond by not pleasing themselves, doing so as an imitation of Christ, who assumed or carried our infirmities. Now included in criticizing and judging, judgment is uh, sort of being slow to give advice. Right? There's a reason why people say talk is cheap. It's easy to give advice. It's much harder to listen. It's much harder to be there for someone else and to carry their burdens. Sometimes we can't give advice. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and be there. Whether weak or strong, Christ is our model. He did not come to be served, and I've thought about this week, this, this week, uh, who could possibly satisfy his needs other than himself, and the Father, and the Holy Spirit? But Christ came to be a servant to reconcile us to the Father, to build his community of faith. And so we're to do the same thing. And we see something similar in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, where Paul pleads for believers to follow Christ's example 
in preferring others' interests over their own. So, carrying the burden of the weak, in a sense, you becoming a model for someone else, is done for, their, for the good of the community. It's good for uh, the good of others. See, selfishness divides. Edification builds up. Now, the habits of our modern world revolve around serving our, our self, our identity, our own ego. Life is consumed, to borrow from a, a popular novel, life is consumed with single serving items. Single meaning not just individual things that we can buy to satisfy ourselves momentarily, but things that serve the single self. You know, in, in, in the United States, there are so many self-help programs, a better you, your life now, various ways for your own particular success. Even in Shanghai, which is very consumeristic, consumerism feeds the individual, right? Um, there's also a sense in the United States of, of affirming ourselves, right? affirming the self. In fact, attending to your own needs has become almost a moral imperative. If you don't serve yourself, you're doing something wrong, right? And, and I've come to believe that this is, uh, this is not just backwards, uh, but really, in fact, this, this effort to please ourselves is actually self-effacing. It's the way of the world. It's not the way of Christianity. And here is something I'm, I'm sure you know. It, it took me many years to realize. Um, but here's the secret to self-help. Are you ready? You write this down. It's for free too. You don't have to give. If you want to give me money, that's fine. Um, I will humbly take your money. No, I'm just kidding. Here's the secret to self-help: to cultivate a, a healthier you. Serve others. Get out of your own head. Well, the first part of Romans 15 ends with a prayer. We see this in verses uh, 5 uh, through 6. It's actually a, a, a kind of a prayer wish. So in, in verses 5 and 6, Paul offers a prayer of intercession, and he uses it as an indirect prayer of uh, exhortation. He returns to the central concern throughout much of this uh, final portion of Romans, and that is maintaining the unity of the church in Rome. He reminds his readers that God is the God of endurance and comfort, patience and consolation. He draws in the strong and the weak to a conclusion by introducing a, quote, one another theme that occurs throughout much of the dialogue. This is what Paul's doing. Paul prays specifically that Jewish and Gentile Christians will be of one mind. This doesn't mean that they need to hold the same opinions on issues, but hold to a common perspective and a common purpose. 
that they may remain united in their devotion to the Lord and to his service in the world. The verse uses the term harmony. And not all passages use uh, that, that translation of, of harmony. In some passages, uh, I believe the originals have that uh, removed. But harmony, uh, uh, you, you can think of you know, musical notes coming together uh, to make a beautiful or economical or workable, we might say, efficient sound. Okay? This unity has its goal in the glory of God. Only when the Roman community is united, when the Christians in Rome act with one accord and speak with one voice, will they be able to glorify God in the way that he deserves. And I think we have an opportunity today, or in this age, to experience this harmony when we come and worship together. Harmony comes as we pray together, as we sing together, as we participate in the sacraments together. Divisions over non-essentials divert the energy necessary for the church's basic mission of proclaiming the good news to the world. Now, there are plenty of examples of how to live. There's only one example that offers us the path toward redemption. And Paul understands the need to show how Christ unites different groups into one community of faith. And so how does Paul do this? How does he legitimize the example to say this is the only example for us? Well, now we move into the historical fulfillment that serves as the foundation for the Christian life. But I want to pause here for our second point and talk a little bit about this hope that we have. It is connected to this historical development. Let me talk about that a little bit later. But before that, he talks about hope. This is point number two, Christ, our hope. Why does Paul, Paul bring up hope? Well, hope gives us strength to bear up under the pressure of difficult circumstances. If he's talking about the stronger Gentiles, Paul is reminding them that they were once without hope. Ephesians 2. But now they have been brought near, grafted into the promises of God. Those who are once separated are now incorporated into a tradition, part of a culture. And by strengthening their hope, these believers became more secure about their place in, uh, uh, as, the, uh, as um, part of the kingdom of God, as part of God's, uh, the body of Christ. If you've ever felt that, if you've ever been in a situation where you feel outside of the body of Christ, right? let's say you're not saved, you're not redeemed, you have not come to repentance, you're an outsider, and then you have tasted the redemption of God, and you realize that there is nothing in my hands that I bring, but only to the cross do I cling, Boy, that's motivating. That's the, oh, that's the hope that, that you have. 
we're lost if it's all about us, right? And let's recall what Paul has said about hope. What precedes hope? Think back to Romans 5. Character. And before character, endurance. Before endurance, tribulations. Endurance, endurance, which includes bearing each other's burdens, produces character, our identity, and character, hope. And this hope is also our confidence. It does not disappoint. Since God, through His Spirit, pours His love into our hearts. You've got to understand that that's the, that's the nature of the hope. This is what the hope is. It's God pouring His love into your heart, as Romans 5 said. So do you want God's love through the Holy Spirit? Then you have to endure. I know this is hard. We want, we modern people, we want relief immediately. We don't want to wait. But we must endure to build that character so that our hope may grow and gain strength. Now, it's easy to think of this scheme, endurance, character, hope, strictly in a kind of an individual way, given what we've read about in Romans 5. But in chapter 15, this hope is now extended to one people. So it's not just individual, it's the, it's the community. A people made of, of Jews and Gentiles, of strong and weak. If the strong believers want to maintain their hope, they will work to put into effect the unity of the people of God. And I say that as a necessity. I don't say that in, in the sense of once you receive hope, oh, be careful, you may lose it. That's not, that's not biblical. This is what's going to happen. They will, under the direction of the Spirit, work for the unity and peace of God's people. Well, like I said, this hope is part of an historical development. Our historical precedent, our part of our heritage. It further, you know, uh, uh, strengthens our faith. It's like, it's like Paul is kind of, he makes these arguments where he gives these examples and then he adds layers to them. And each layer makes his point much heavier, right? So it's harder and harder to uproot. That's why he, come, he brings in history. And the genius of Paul is to take the Old Testament where the Jews... And then the New Testament, where the Gentiles are, puts them together, but points them to the centerpiece, the capstone um, in Christ. And this leads us to point number three. Christ, our historical fulfillment. Christ, our heritage, however you want to write it. The bringing of the gospel to the Jews fulfilled the promises of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the evangelization and conversion of the Gentiles were also foretold in the Old Testament. See, the mystery that's spoken about, which is now revealed, the Gentiles being incorporated into Christ's kingdoms, is part of the fulfillment of history. That's the mystery that's revealed. And note how Paul strings together a series of passages to make his point, introducing them with a very powerful 
phrase, as it is written, and you see that, as it is written, verses 8 and 9, you need to pay attention. Verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to thy name. A, quote, uh, a quotation from Psalm 18, also 2 Samuel 22, where David, having incorporated non-Israelite nations in his empire, counts them as now belonging to the heritage of the God of Israel. Verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with, this, with his people. A quotation from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Like Psalm 18, this text speaks about the praise of God for his acts in subduing other nations. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him or extol him. From Psalm 117, where the whole world is called upon to praise the God of Israel for his steadfast love and faithfulness, his mercy and truth. And then the verse 12. This is so great. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. From Isaiah 11.10, where the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the expected Messiah through David, comes. This is the root is the signal to the people, or the shoot is the signal to the people. The Gentiles' participation in the praise of God comes as a result of the work of Christ, of this emerging root. So Paul is, is, is uh, citing uh, the, the writings, the law, the prophets, the foundation of the, of, uh, the church, he lays this out so that believers will better understand the reason why they should receive one another. The inclusion of the Gentiles is not a sort of disconnected dispensation or a correction, if you will, to the human-induced failures of previous dispensations or epochs. Rather, this has been God's plan all along. I'd say from Genesis 3 on. So Paul reminds the weak Jewish Christians that the strong Gentile Christians are full members of the people of God. And he reminds the Gentiles that the status that they enjoy rests on a Jewish foundation. He says this in, in Romans 11. The root, he says, supports you. He offers another prayer wish in uh, verse 13 similar to 5 and 6. As the Gentiles have come now to set their hope on the root of Jesse, so Paul prays to the God who gives hope. In praying that this God might fulfill you in all joy and peace as you believe, Paul is undoubtedly thinking specifically of the weak and the strong in the Roman community. It is only the God of hope, filling them with peace and joy, in order for them to abound in hope, to realize the reality of a new people, Jews and Gentiles, praise God with a united voice. Now this last portion uh, for today, still in, in sort of the historical uh, um, fulfillment, verses 40, th 40, 40, 14 through 20, 
Paul offers further encouragement to the Christians in Rome by placing himself in the specific work of drawing together weak and strong, Jews and Gentiles, as part of God's overall Old Testament and New Testament redemptive plan. It's almost like Paul is kind of a model agent in this historical work that he's doing. Now, although not directly involved, or not having been involved in the establishment of the church in Rome, Paul nonetheless heard of the kindness and generosity of its members. That's good news. He learned of their intellectual abilities, how they were filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another, one another. But of course, there are things that he's heard that requires him to be a bit more bold in giving instruction. We should remember that Paul is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, which is confirmed in Acts 9, Romans 1, uh, Galatians 1 and 2. And the Roman church, therefore, a mainly Gentile church, church, lies within the scope of Paul's authority. And as he looks back on the work of Christ accomplished through him, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Illyricum is um, sort of the, on the coast, eastern coast of the Adriatic. It's like parallel with, with Italy, so uh, northern part of uh, Macedonia, uh, uh, north of uh, Greece. And he says, preaching along the roads of Galatia, Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, Paul feels the need to further defend the incorporation of the Gentiles. And he refers to himself, notice his language, he refers to himself as a, um, a priestly servant, uh, uh, literally a, a liturgos, which is where, where we get the, the term liturgy. He's a servant or a minister of Christ. Hence the reason he mentions the offering of the Gentiles, a sacrifice acceptable to God. So using that Old Testament Im imagery in a metaphorical sense, with the Gentiles. This, of course, reflects the changes in the priestly activities from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But one thing remains the same, the idea that God, by his Holy Spirit, sanctifies the Gentiles, turning them from unclean and sinful creatures to holy offerings fit for service and praise of the Holy God. And the verification of this is the obedience of the Gentiles. Christ has used Paul by word and deed to accomplish this mission. Paul identifies the deed of his ministry with signs and wonders accomplished by the power of the Spirit. And while the power of signs and wonders probably relates to such deeds, it is unlikely that Paul intends the phrase, signs and wonders, as restricted to his work. Deed and work, he says in verse 17, need not be restricted to miraculous works only. 
Paul's apostolic work would include many other kinds of activities. And I'll just throw that out there right now because Paul is going to get um, a little bit sort of technical in laying out his plans in the latter part of 15 and then also in chapter 16, which we'll talk about next time. But Paul expresses confidence as one who has worked for Christ for the Christian church. He is part of God's redemptive historical work. He recognizes his unique role in opening up the Gentile world to the gospel. And now that he's finished up his work in the East, Paul then looks to the West uh, and he's, and he's uh, thinking about going to uh, on his way to Spain, which we'll talk about uh, in a couple weeks. So Paul is a kind of model for the church. This is, what you're, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to treat uh, one another. Because it's part of its overall fulfillment. Let me conclude with this brief summary exhortation. The end goal for Paul is the unity of the church. I think that's very clear to us. This unity comes through the work of Christ who reconciles the entire cosmos, but especially his church to himself. Both weak and strong Christians, people from different stages in their Christian walk, should be bound central affirmation that Christ is Lord. Would you like to be part of this community, the body of Christ? Would you like to have this secure hope and to have this hope abundantly? And all you need to do is rest and trust on the completed historical work of Christ in his active obedience, his sacrificial death and bodily resurrection. And for the believer, you need to recognize that you have been received by Christ as a matter of pure grace, and that same grace has reached out and brought you into the kingdom, a kingdom made up of peoples from all tribes, tongues, cultures, uh, nations, with all kinds of specific social, political, philosophical ideas. But we should all examine ourselves to see whether we are living for others, living for the peace and the unity of the church having Christ always as the model for how we're to live. But always remember that you're part of a much greater, and I think beautiful and, and, and convincing story of God's uh, redemption.